HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. My guest today is Tom Philpot. He is one of the most renowned journalists in the country covering the intersection of food, agriculture, and the environment. Uh, I could not be more excited to have Tom on the show, as he is somebody who covers a lot of what I do, and it's just really exciting to talk to somebody doing something similar. Um, He's currently the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones and previously worked as a writer and editor at Grist. And he's here today to talk about his new book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Um, as you heard me say, I'm so excited to have you and also want to say congratulations on the book release. Um, it's kind of a crazy year to, to have a book coming out, I would imagine. It is. Um, it's, you know, it, it makes it in some ways a little bit easier because everything I do is via, you know, like sort of bookstore appearances or all via Zoom. So none of this, you know, crazy traveling. But um, right. So I. I you know, in some senses, I'm happy about that, but in other senses, it would be, you know, be good to get out there a little bit more and, you know, talk to people about the book face to face. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll do what we can uh, in this radio format for now. <laughs> so, so what? One reason I just finished the book, and one reason I think um, it's really important is that generally, when we talk about the ways in which the food system causes ecological destruction, you know, whether it's in the form of water pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, soil degradation, all all of these things. Um, Defenders of industrial agriculture will say these impacts are inevitable because we have to feed the world. There's a sense that they're necessary evils in order to produce enough food, right? Yeah. Um, But your kind of central thesis is that this way of doing things, producing as much as possible in these efficient centralized systems, actually threatens our ability to feed the world. Why? (laughs) Yeah, I mean that that is like this um this central paradox and I remember reading something um you know 10 or so years ago that really caught my eye it was like the 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 framing was can sustainable agriculture feed the world. And if you think mm-hmm. about a statement like that it's like well can unsustainable agriculture feed the world and for how long? And right. when you look at sort of what makes the kind of agriculture we do unsustainable, you know, the, the answer that you get is, well, not for very long because, um, you know, as I show in the book, in the, in the places, you know, I focus on two places, but this really, you know, the, the California Central Valley and the, the Corn Belt centered in Iowa, but it's really true of any place you look at where agriculture gets really intensive. There are many places in the country like that, many places in the world. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what you end up doing is consuming the very resources that make it a great place to grow food in the first place. And when you've done that, then, you know, you've tapped out this resource and you're not feeding the world anymore. And so I think that, you know, that is something that we have to um, to grapple with. And, that, and I hope my book um, makes people think a little bit more about that. Yeah, I really like that framing that you use too, because it's it's kind of funny how it's just another example how the how the word sustainable is kind of meaningless at this point. Because wouldn't that be the whole like if it's sustainable, it, it has to feed the world because it, the the whole point is that it's going to continue to sustain us, right? Exactly. Like, it's kind of a a crazy. We sort of just use that word to to mean something um, kind of incomprehensible at this yeah. point. Um, so, yeah, so you, you talk about, a lot about um, the, the Midwest and the corn soy hog systems and the effects of nutrient losses there, which I know more about and I've covered a little bit over the years. Um, but I was genuinely shocked by your reporting on water in California, especially in the Central Valley. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, the flood, the great flood of 1862. When did you first hear about that? I first heard about it when I was first digging into the research for the book. So I'd already decided on the, the two areas and I had done a bunch of work on California droughts. Um, you know, the, mm. the Calif- I think the, the drought probably had just ended when, um, when I um, was sort of digging into the research around the book. And I was just astonished to find that in addition to there being the threat of bigger and longer and more severe droughts going forward, um, almost, you know, completely baked into the cake by climate change, 
But paradoxically, is also the threat of a massive mega flood that is really hard to get our, our minds around the scale of. And there's actually a precedent that is largely forgotten, and that is the California flood of 1861-62. So, so what happens, you know, what, you know, basically what happens is it starts raining in December in 1861 on the entire West Coast of the United States and mm. doesn't stop for 40 days and 40, literally out of the Bible, like a biblical flood, <laughs> 40 days and 40 wow. nights. And yeah, so I, I heard about it and I was like, um, you know, there, there is some work being done on it in California. There's a great uh, academic named B. Lynn Ingram. She's a professor of paleoclimatology at Berkeley. And I started digging into this entire world and I you know, came away from it fascinated and terrified. Yeah. Well, and the research that you mentioned, it seems like there is quite a bit happening and that there you know, finding a lot of evidence that the likelihood of another flood of this magnitude is quite high. And I I mean, I hadn't heard that ever. Why do you think that um, that hasn't been more widely reported? Yeah, I mean, you know, because, you know, just so we make sure the listeners understand the scale. So we're talking about a flood that could put the entire Central Valley, which stretches from, you know, not that far north of Los Angeles up to the northern border of the state, you know, toward the Oregon border. Uh, so you're talking about, you know, 300-mile-long territory, 50-, 60-mile-wide territory, under, you know, 20 feet of water, um, in an area that in 1861 was pretty sparsely populated. There weren't urban centers there. There were Native American populations who actually fled before the flood really developed. Um, you know, versus today where you've got Fresno and Stockton and um, all of these fast growing cities. Um, and so I think, you know, the question of why isn't this more famous, I think it's just harder to envision something like that happening where we can envision earthquakes because they happen with some regularity out there. And, you know, anyone Who's, who was born, you know, by anyone who, who was born after 1980 can remember, you know, the massive earthquake that happened in California. I'm sorry, in the, in the mm-hmm. Bay Area. But it's hard. I mean, this is something out of a disaster movie. And yeah. I think it's just really hard to think about it in a concrete way. And so people just don't think about it. Yeah, I guess that that's kind of typical of, of some of these um, things we try to talk about when we talk about climate change, the climate crisis. Some some of the, the impacts are just so hard to even imagine, right? There's like a cognitive dissonance that's had, like you can't even fathom something of, of that um, yeah. magnitude. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you mentioned how large the Central Valley is and, and what would be um, affected if... Um, a flood of this size were to, to happen again, um, what would that mean for the food system based on the reporting you did? Yeah. So, I mean, you just have to think about how much food we get from that, from that region, from that, that sort of bowl in the middle of California. And, you know, it's something in order of like a fifth or a quarter of the food that we eat in this country, um, fruits and vegetables, nuts, 
Uh, huge amounts of milk come from there. Um, there's there's beef production. It's the biggest milk production. California's the biggest milk producing state, and most of the milk production happens in the Central Valley. It happens in California. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you're talking about um, an incredible disruption in you know that year's crops that would you know there would be a scramble to make up for it. There would definitely be higher prices. There'd be a scramble to import. Um, and then you're also talking about millions and millions of dollars in investments made in things like almond groves, that um, pistachio groves. These are um, investments that people make um, that take place over 25 years. They're very expensive to put in. Um, and so, you know, you're talking about potentially killing off, you know, this massive base of, of almond and pistachio groves. And then, you know, something else that you got to think about is um, all of the farm chemicals, all of the manure from this, you know, I mean, we're talking about giant industrial scale uh, milk factory farms, um, factory dairy uh -huh. farms, all of that material, you know, getting taken up into water. And then as it dries up, just sort of sinking, you know, think of all the pesticides and fertilizers that, we, that are going to, that are always on hand in an area like that. Um, and it's, um, you know, like the academics who studied, who modeled out what a, a storm would look like really did not get much further than to sort of gape at what could possibly happen. And I think, you know, once again, this is just like, you know, how do you model something like that? Like, you know, yeah. has there, you know, something like that really hasn't happened in the modern world where a, um, you know, probably, you know, possibly that one of the two or three most industrialized agriculture centers on the globe coming under 20 feet of water. Uh, and so it's really hard to model. But what we what we can say is that it would completely screw things up for many years <laughs> in one of the key nodes of food production uh, in the United States and in the world. Right. Well, and I guess, you know, another reason maybe more attention isn't paid to this is, you know, as you document in the book, the the problem of, of drought is so front and center and present that the region is dealing with that on a daily basis and trying to figure out where to get more water. So maybe the, the idea of th even thinking about a, the prospect of a flood is kind of foreign, you know? Yeah, that's definitely true. And there there actually are some scary trade-offs on that very question because one of the things that people want to do to make more water available to farms in the Central Valley is to build more dams. And, mm. um, and you know, that's not really a viable solution because, you know, when you talk to water experts in California, the, 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 the dams are, are – like the, the good dams are already built. Like the places that are, you know – optimal for putting a dam and especially a large dam there are already dams there uh, anything you know there, there isn't a whole lot of more water storage to be wrung out of the area but whenever you build them you're sort of putting more pressure on a possible sudden you know deluge of water um, and so it, you know those two goals don't you know flood control and making water available for agriculture are often competing goals. And of course, in the Central Valley, the push is always to, you know, grab more water. Right. 
Yeah. So there's a lot happening in the Central Valley um, that, um, you know, that we really all um, should be worried about. Um, and so, but let's move to, to the Midwest for for a little bit. So the problem that you focused on was really soil loss as kind of the foundation. Why did you choose that particular angle uh, when looking at the the Midwest agricultural system? It's funny because it was influenced by California because, you know, really the idea for the book germinated with California, just sort of like thinking about here is this, um, this jewel of our food system, this linchpin of our food system. And essentially, uh, we're drawing down fossil water, water that can't be replaced in our lifetimes to feed ourselves. And there's this race to the bottom of the aquifer going on there that there's no good end to. Um, you know, beyond the solution I came up with in the book of like sort of building up regional food systems elsewhere. And so mm-hmm. while I'm contemplating that, and I was actually thinking about a book on California itself, just focusing on that area. Um, I started reading about these big storms that were happening in the spring of 2013. Um, and, and so, as you know, as a reporter who covers this stuff very well, I should add, um, as you know, um, after the harvest of corn and soybeans in the fall and before the next year's crop comes up, there's this period of many months where the, the ground is essentially just bare. And it's during this period where the Midwest is getting these bigger and bigger and more intense storms. Um, and so one of the, you know, so there's 2013 was a really bad year for that. There was massive amounts of soil loss um, because, you know, essentially the soil just washes away being unprotected by vegetation. I came across a scientist named Rick Cruz out of um, Iowa State University Mm-hmm. And he was just sort of casually talking about catastrophic amounts of soil loss that, you know, they're, they're worse some years than others. But when you average them out, they're extreme. You know, there's a situation where the, the Midwest soil, which is this incredible resource, is essentially being spent. And so I'm thinking to myself, well... We're drawing down fossil water in California at this, you know, insane pace, and we're doing something really similar to soil in the Midwest. This is a real problem for our food system, um, and so that's, so that's sort of why, you know, I, I had water on the mind as a finite resource in California, and mm-hmm. then I see this other equally or more important region with this other finite resource that is also expending it, and you know. In both cases, these are the foundations of food production. Like you don't have agriculture in California without abundant water because it's a Mediterranean climate. And you don't have, you know, this highly productive agriculture in the Midwest without this sort of lush blanket of, uh, of soil that, you know, we encountered, you know, American settlers encountered in the, in the mid-19th century. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's a... Interesting parallel, and I think it's it's also helps helps people understand kind of the varied problems or the the varied um, challenges of producing food in different places. You know, I think like we often don't think about um, how what should be produced where and how much mm. um, you know the climate, the soil, the water availability of a of a place matter when you decide what to grow. You know. 
Yep. yep. That's exactly right. Um, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit about solutions. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing needs. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. The Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture will be hosting their annual Young Farmers and Cooks Conference virtually this year on December 8th through 10th. Programming will cover topics like mutual aid, regional grain economies, land management practices, and much, much more. Whether you're a farmer, cook, butcher, miller, preservationist, processor, or anyone else in the food chain, this conference is for you. Learn more at stonebarncenter.org slash YFCC. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I've been talking to veteran food and agriculture journalist Tom Philpot, author of the new book, Perilous Bounty. So, Tom, we talked about a lot of problems that are happening in the food system um, before the break. And it can feel, it can feel a little overwhelming. Um, actually, my first question is kind of, <laughs> I am going to ask you about solutions, but I'm actually still thinking of another kind of problem of, of its own. But, you know, you talk in the book about the kind of Michael Pollan driven food movement. Um, you mentioned it in the beginning and then again in the end and how, it's led to an increase in local and regional food sales, which, you know, arguably can be good for the environment and local economies, but it hasn't really at all slowed business as usual in the overall industrial food system as we know it. Um, what did you learn in reporting this book about about why that might be, like why it has, why that quote unquote movement hasn't had a bigger impact on on shifting the, the bigger system. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So in the writing of the book, I also had the, mo you know, cause I've been doing this since the, um, I think I started writing about food politics like around 2005. So just, just a year before omnivores dilemma came out. Right. And, um, and so that, that, that book casts a really long shadow and it's kind of a landmark of, um, there was a before and after, in that book. I think it really galvanized people to think about where their food's coming from to, um, you know, there's already a kind of a farmer's market boom going on that it certainly, um, threw, um, gasoline onto sort of made it burn brighter. And, um, 
And so something else I did in the, in the conclusion of the book was I kind of took stock of that movement and where it's gotten us. You know, I was very much a part of it. Like I, you know, moved from Brooklyn in 2004 to a small farm in North Carolina. To, <laughs> classic um, story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very classic story. A small farm yeah. in Appalachia, North Carolina, um, because I was really interested in food and where it came from and being part of a movement to, to, to change things. And, you know, I was in a CSA in, in Brooklyn before that community gardener. Um, and, um, and so, you know, what I realized is that, you know, Paul talked about the a, a, a market is movement and voting with your uh, with your four or three times a day as transformational um, um, techniques. Like we are gonna, you know, as consumers, we're gonna band together and transform this. And you know, a bunch of people uh, took up the call, and that, that there has been this explosion of farmers markets. But I think what it's uh, but you know, as you say, um, you know, industrial agriculture proceeded apace. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all these companies that I talk about in the book, your Monsantos, which got bought by Bear, all, all these companies, you know, minted millions of dollars for their shareholders over the same period. All the problems that you and I write about uh, continued. The sort of you know dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And, you know, all of these, um, you know, features that we that we write about, everything continued exploitation of labor in the food system. You know, you know, the veil of that ripped off by the coronavirus uh, crisis. And so what I realized is that the sort of consumer and in an incredibly unequal society where there's so much income inequality and wealth inequality, that you've got a small, relatively small set of consumers who can afford to vote with their forks and make, quote unquote, make better decisions. Uh-huh. Um, it's going to lead to a very, very limited response. And this is something that I was actually writing about in the mid 2000s when I first got into it, that there was a danger of instead of transforming the industrial food system, what we did, what we would achieve would be to create two food systems, this one that is very nice if you're able to live inside it. If you're able right. to live by Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn and shop at the uh, Brooklyn, you know, Park Slip Food Co-op, you, it feels like you live in this transformed world. But that ends up being a food system primarily for, for um, fairly well-off people. And by having an alternative, you're almost even strengthening industrial food system because you're sort of like letting off steam you're um, channeling discontent with it in in this other direction and you know i just realized that that's essentially in in the writing of this book that's essentially what we've done we've created two food systems and now is the time to work on transforming the dominant food system and, you know, where I end up in the book is that that's going to require social movements. It's going to require, you know, not just voting with your fork, but also voting with your feet, getting out in the street, because these, you know, these companies that profit uh, from it are smart and they, you know, take some of their profits and invested invest in lobbying and campaign finance. And they really have a stronghold on the political system. And that ends up what we have to transform. So I just feel like, you no, know, I just concluded that we came to the limits of 
the Marco Pollan revolution. Yeah. Well, and you seem pretty optimistic about the power of the vote in the end of, of voting, you know, with your vote, not not your fork. Um, I, you know, I, I was kind of surprised by that. I'm maybe more of a pessimist. I feel like, you know, under every administration of the last several decades, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, the farm bill has largely remained the same and propped up the system yeah. that we're talking about. I like how... How will voting with your vote potentially lead to a change in this system? Well, yeah, I mean, I finished my book uh, at a very particular moment in American, uh, in the American drama. And that was <laughs> that five minute period when Bernie Sanders was, well, uh, actually, I think when I finished it, Bernie Sanders had a lot of momentum and Liz Warren had a lot of momentum. And Joe Biden was scraping bottom. Mm. And so it seemed like maybe one of those two, both of them had really transformative, um, you know, ag agendas that they were putting out. They both did very well in Iowa. I think um, that was right around the time I was finishing up. And, um, and so, yeah, it did seem for that moment. And I think now we are right back in the middle of where you're talking about, um, especially, you know, also with Congress. And I think that like, um, what is going to be required is social movements. And I just mm. want to give a quick example. And that is that in India right now, today, um, the, the government, they've got a very right wing kind of Trumpist government. And one of the things that that governor, that, that Prime Minister Modi is doing is he's putting into effect some neoliberal reforms to agricultural policy that is basically going to put, you know, it's basically going to harm literally millions of small scale and medium scale farmers. Mm. And they are. So, I mean, these are very different situations because we, you know, our Farming populations are rounding error. You know, it's like 2% of our, less than 2% of our population. There is much, much, much higher. So I'm not saying these are parallel situations. Right. But their, their farming sector, their small and mid-scale farms, non-industrial scale farms, have formed a movement and they are literally blocking traffic in, they've marched to, um, you know, the capital and are blocking traffic and are in a standoff with the cops and Modi, wow. Prime Minister Modi, has not very much choice but to figure out some way to compromise with them. And I think that that is the sort of thing that, okay, we don't have the farm population to do that. Like if every one of our farmers marched on Washington, I mean, like if the same percentage of our farmers marched on Washington as their farmers are marching on their capital, it would be a tiny number. Yeah. Um, but... We as people, because we have a stake in the food system, we have a stake in having a healthy farm system, those are the kinds of things that we're going to have to do. We're going to have to make, you know, there's these, if you're a politician in Washington, you've got pressure from this lobby and that lobby, and you've got pressure from you, the population in your state or your district who are voting for you. Um, and the, the voting... Uh, pressures tend to be pretty light compared to these special interests. And we need to add another interest into the, into the soup there. And that is, you know, uh, political action, social movements, people getting on this out on the street. I really believe this. I mean, I think that 
any gains that we get in, in climate change are going to because are going to be because there's been a climate movement, and I mm. think that climate change and food are the same issue. Really, I mean, they're part. Food is part of the same issue as climate change, and yeah. a broader climate movement demanding solutions, demanding the end of business as usual, is what it's going to take. And I know that in the U.S. Con, uh, context, that's very far fetched. But then I also think about in the last decade, Occupy Wall Street, two major Black Lives Matter uprisings, right? Um, many. Um, Union uprisings, Chicago teachers unions. We have seen political action in the streets making change here. And I think that the food system is going to have to take a food system reformers are going to have to take a lesson from that. Yeah. Do you think it matters that in the U.S. there's so much um, division seems like maybe the wrong word. But to me, it does feel like that um, farmers are not united in, you know, in terms of their interests. Like it, it sometimes, you know, we're talking about farmers' interests. We're talking about farmers who are kind of aligning themselves with the interests of corporate agribusiness, right? And then other times it's, you yeah. know, the interests of a small dairy farmer in Vermont who has a hundred cows. And it, and it's like, it, it's hard to, to see kind of a coming together of um, people around this issue because, the thinking and the, the, you know, is so different depending on who the farmer is. Yeah. And, you know, also it, it also has to be said that like the, what Modi is trying to do in India was done here a hundred years ago. Mm. Um, you know, basically clearing the land of farmers and, you know, consolidating farmland into fewer and fewer, larger and larger hands. So those interests um, exist so there too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's hard for us to have an agrarian movement like they have in India or like they have in a place like Mexico because essentially we've destroyed our agrarian economies. And so that's why it, in the United States it can't – I mean farmers have to have a role, but it, you know, it can't be just farmers uh, mm-hmm. because we've essentially cleared the land of farmers. And, and that's one of the problems we have to solve. Um, but it's going to have to be a much more, a, a much broader movement than that. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. So before we wrap up, um, I just want to ask, you know, we're talking about solutions and, you know, your book is called Perilous Bounty. And um, I guess maybe, you know, sort of the, the flip side of perilous would be resilient. Um, yes. What, <laughs> what does... Based on you know reporting this book and and all of all of your reporting over the years, what does a resilient food system look like? Like what are what sort of the foundation do you think of a system that is resilient rather than perilous? I mean, I think one of the themes in my book is the simplification of agriculture, the sort of narrowing of the kind of crops you grow, of um, you know moving in case of California, this sort of big push into this highly mechanized, um, water-intensive almond farming. And and obviously in the Midwest, it's the sort of pairing away of all other crops besides corn and soybeans. And so I think the the basic principle would be to move towards diversity, to move Mm -hmm. towards, um, you know, 
more more crops more yeah. you know in the midwest they, they obviously need to to add a third and a fourth crop into the rotation and bring animals back to the land in california i think they need to um you know i think if i were running california agriculture i would say look um let's stop trying to conquer the snack market of asia with nuts mm. um and let's let's you know, we are, we are one of the world's biggest Mediterranean climates. We've got, we do have these amazing water resources. Let's scale our agriculture down to the size of our water resources and focus on being this great regional source of, you know, fruits and vegetables and dairy that's not done on an industrial scale. Um, and, and, and I think that everywhere else, as California, I think is going to have to, like they, they could do what I just said, or they could continue to butt up against uh, the reality of, you know, their water situation and also their groundwater legislation that passed in 2014 that's going to cause big limits on them anyway. Um, and I think that we're going to see California receding as such a big source of fruits and vegetables. And that is a call for other regions to step up and, you mm -hmm. know, build some redundancy into the system and start growing more fruits and vegetables elsewhere. And I think that is one of the victories of the farmer's market slash CSA slash pollen marketist movement in the past 25 years is that it's given us a great basis for that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we, you know, when I was a kid and when you were a kid, um, the situation with farmer's markets was way different than it is now. There's way more to build on in every region of the United States than there was 25 years ago. And I think, you know, scaling that up and using policy to figure out, hey, you know, what do our region's farmers need to produce more food for our region and how can we make those investments? Um, but, you know, just basically diversifying the food system is the simple way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.